Thank you, band, for leading us. It is finished. It is done. What an incredible song to sing today and every day for the rest of our lives. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm excited about the price he paid on the cross for me. And I hope that if you're tuning in and you're listening this morning, that you never get over that, that you never think somehow that that's old news, that's old hat, something you've known for your whole life ever since you became a Christian. But my prayer for you is that every day the gospel would fire you up and it would light you on fire to share that message with the world that we live in. So we're so happy to be with you today to be able to preach from God's Word. I'm coming at you this morning from John chapter 18 and John chapter 19. If you want to download those notes, they're there for you there on the website. You can download this entire outline, and I have a few blanks where you can fill in just to kind of help you keep up and uh, stay honest and to stay awake uh, this morning as we're studying this morning about how the Jews, this is the title for the sermon, are you ready? The Jews smell blood. The Jews smell blood. That's what we're looking at from John chapter 18, verse 39, and then into John chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through verse 7. The Jews smell blood. Let me read the passage, and then we'll dive into our time together this morning. Verse 39 says of John 18, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Chapter 19, verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out to them again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that it is finished, that we can cry out to Jesus, our Lord and our God, and we know that that's all true because of what we're reading even in this very text, that Jesus was willing to be crucified, that he was willing to go before Pilate, that he was willing to go before the, the, the Jews, and he was willing to offer his life as a ransom for anybody who's stuck in any sin and who is from any walk of life could know that the true love that we see in the gospel story is the only love that would ever change us and bring us to life in him. And yet, in order to get there, it was kind of ugly. It was a kind of ugly situation, as we'll see even this morning, of the blood that Jesus shed as he went to the cross. So I pray that you would just awaken our hearts to the truth of these verses, that we might learn more about the depth of your love and your commitment to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Well, when you smell something, it's because tiny molecules of that substance are floating around in the air. When you breathe in those molecules, they dissolve into the wet lining of your nose, causing you to smell a certain scent. Now, if you're smelling coffee, like in the morning, or a beautiful chocolate dessert where you just kind of smell that chocolate, or even better, a barbecue that's going on, and you can smell that, it is a wonderful thing. But if you're smelling something that stinks, well, that's a different story altogether. And did you know that smelling underwater is no different, except that the molecules are already dissolved into the seawater? Sharks are known for having a keen smell in the water. And sharks can smell blood, many scientists say, up to about a quarter of a mile away. And they are known to hunt down their wounded prey. Studies have shown that sharks can sense a, disease, a distressed creature, and they respond to scents emitted by injured fish, and they can hear the sounds of a wounded person thrashing around in the water. Given the choice between healthy and injured prey, the sharks will always pick the injured prey because it will take less energy to catch it. But things get crazy when more than one shark shows up to take advantage of the prey's misfortune. Many feeding frenzies start near fishing boats, particularly when fishermen pull in a net of fish. These fish are thrashing against the net and perhaps have they been injured during their capture and the chemicals that they give off attract the sharks and sharks become aroused by the scent of blood and think that they've happened upon an easy meal, but when more than one shark shows up, the scene gets competitive. And I think that it's safe to say that the more blood there is in the water, the stronger the smell, the longer the distance a shark can detect it, and the more fierce the attack. To attract sharks, diving companies use chum, which is a mixture of blood and dead fish bits. And whenever the attraction, uh, whether the attraction to, uh, is to the frantic prey or to the frothy mix of blood and guts, the intense stress emitted by these items cause the sharks to freak out and to enter into a frenzied state. I know you're probably thinking it's like shark week or something, right? But that's what sharks do, and that's how they function in the water. And I want to let you know that in our passage today, we're going to see a lot of Jews swarming around Jesus. And the Jewish leaders want Jesus dead. And they are willing to go to any measure in order to get that done. The chief priest and the Jewish officers cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And they stirred up the crowd and they, they begged Pilate to release Barabbas instead of Jesus. And they saw Jesus whipped and beaten and dripping with blood. And this only caused the Jews to want more blood. This flogging actually caused the Jews to freak out and enter into a frenzied state. They were hungry for power. They were greedy for control. They were desperate for Jesus to die on a cross. Well, this morning, I want to give you five headings as we continue to look at this Roman court responsible for sentencing Jesus to death by crucifixion. 
Now, after Jesus was arrested, if you remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he faced two courts. There was the Jewish court and there was a Roman court. In the Jewish court, he was illegally tried at night by Annas, the former high priest, and then by Caiaphas, the present high priest. And while neither could accuse Jesus of any sin, the Sanhedrin did decide to put Jesus to death for, uh, for him claiming to be the Christ, the Son of God. And so they bound Jesus and they delivered him over to the Roman governor named Pilate. Last week, we saw the first trial of the Roman court. So the Jewish court had three trials. The Roman court had three trials. And that first one last week between Jesus and Pilate, where Jesus asked him that question, are you the king of the Jews? And you remember that Jesus responded to that in John 18, verse 36. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. And we talked about how you got to remember that Jesus did not come at his first advent to be a political king. He came to usher in a spiritual kingdom of salvation for all those who would repent and believe in him. And his kingdom is not of this world, and it is not from this world. And when we surrender all to Jesus, he fills us with eternal life, and he gives us that abundant life. He gives us a joy-filled life. Otherwise, you will be left in your bondage to your earthly desires. So you got to come to that point to where you join the kingdom of light, that you remove yourself from the kingdom of darkness. And really, you can't do that on your own. It's got to be Christ doing that, opening your eyes and pulling you out of Satan's kingdom and placing you into the kingdom of Christ. And when you belong to the kingdom of Christ, he's your Lord and he's your master and he owns all of you. And I want you to surrender to him this morning. I want you to know that Jesus has come to be king in your heart. And that he's come to bear the witness to the truth. And so in verse 37 of chapter 18, Jesus said, Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. To know Jesus is to know the truth. To know Jesus is to experience the grace of God in salvation. And as followers of Jesus, we want to listen to and obey his word. And to listen to Jesus means that we want to walk in his truth. And Pilate neither knew the truth, and he didn't walk in the truth, which is why he responded at the end of last week's message in John chapter 18, verse 37, where he says, verse 38, Pilate says, what is truth? And Pilate went back out to the Jews after interrogating Jesus, what is truth? He goes back out to the Jews, and he said in verse 38, I find no guilt in him. And this is where we pick up our sermon for this morning, looking again at these five headings that will continue to describe the second and third trial of Jesus being now in that Roman court. So here we go. You ready? The first heading, number one, the trial before Herod. Now, the trial before Herod does not uh, take place in the Gospel of John. It's not recorded here. So I want you to open your Bible, turn back a book or two over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, and we're going to see the second trial as our first point for the sermon today, the second trial between Jesus and King Herod. So your next blank there, A, says Pilate sent Jesus over to Herod. And again, we're looking at Luke chapter 23, verse 6. It says, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. 
So Jesus heard from the Sanhedrin, all of the chief priests and the Pharisees that we need you to basically condemn Jesus to death. And when he heard Jesus was a Galilean, he thought to himself that he's going to take uh, the easy way out. He's going to send him up to Galilee, if you will, uh, to be tried by Herod. Now, Herod was already down. It was the Passover week, so he didn't have to send him up to Galilee. Herod was right there in Jerusalem. But Luke 23, verse 7 says, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. Now, I just want to make sure you don't confuse this Herod with King Herod the Great, the great builder of the temple who built Caesarea and uh, tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. Uh, That King Herod had actually died an excruciatingly painful death just a few years after Jesus was born. And so they took King Herod the Great's kingdom and they split it between his four sons. And so this particular Herod, the Herod over Galilee, was Herod Antipas, who was also responsible uh, for beheading John the Baptist. And Pilate had a Jewish criminal, Jesus, who had committed a Jewish crime. He claimed to be the son of God. And so the Roman governor, Pilate, thought it best to be judged by a Jewish authority. And so that's why he sent him over to Herod. And then we see there in Luke chapter 23, verses 8 and 9, your next blank, by the way, says, Herod questioned Jesus. Herod questioned Jesus. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made him no answer. So Herod was glad to see Jesus, the verse says, but not for the right reason. You see, Herod wanted to treat Jesus as a genie and have Jesus do some type of miracle on demand. Uh, For Herod, this was a circus. Uh, This was a chance to see some magic. This was his opportunity to finally see a, a supernatural act up close and personal. And Herod wasn't really interested in talking to Jesus about his own soul or how he could be a better leader over Galilee or about his personal need for forgiveness. Herod just wanted to see Jesus do something magical instead of uh, Jesus really changing his dead heart. Jesus, of course, doesn't uh, do a miracle for Herod. Uh, Jesus does not participate in any horse and pony show. Uh, Jesus does not answer a fool according to his folly. Jesus does not throw his pearl before the swine. Jesus did not come to meet the world's demands. Jesus came to save the world of its own depravity. And so Herod didn't like what's going on. And so the next blank there says that Jesus was mistreated. Verses 10 and 11, Jesus was mistreated. The chief priest and scribe stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And so sadly, we see that the chief priests and scribes were vehemently accusing Jesus. This means that they were using expression with intense emotions. They were relentless and vigorous in making their false accusations, but to no avail. And so Herod and his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt. That means that they treated Jesus as if he was worthless. They gave him no respect. They showed him utter disdain. They rejected him. They scoffed him. They mocked him. They dressed him up in splendid garments fit for a king. They made him a laughingstock. 
and they sent him back to Pilate, for there was nothing else that they could do. And then we see in verse 12 that Herod and Pilate became friends. Verse 12 says that and Herod and, and, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. Before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Uh, I mean, before this, Herod and Pilate hated each other. Uh, there was constant political tension between these two. Uh, this would be like the tension that exists between President Trump and Nancy Pelosi. Uh, This would be like the tension that existed a few years ago between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. This would be like the tension of your sports fan between USC and UCLA. I mean, some of those fans, they just hate each other. And Pilate and Herod hated each other. And they were always at it against each other. And yet on this particular day, they become friends. Now, it's not a bad thing to become friends with your enemy, unless that bond that unites you is your hatred of Jesus, hatred of his word, and hatred of his claim to be the Son of God. They hated Jesus because they hated his kingdom, and they didn't want him to be a king, and they didn't want him to rule over anybody. Well, listen to me this morning. I want to make sure that you understand that our goal is not to make friends with the world. It is to lovingly confront the world and to preach the gospel to the world and to see the world converted. We are not here to compromise. We are here to bring hope to a broken world. We are not here to wink at immorality. We are not here to point uh, at, at people in a condescending way, but rather to point people to the love of God. We are not here to embrace sin. We are here to lead people out of darkness and into light. And unfortunately, that didn't happen with Herod on that day. And so this second trial between Jesus and Herod didn't really accomplish anything. And so Herod sends Jesus right back to Pilate for the third and the final trial of the Roman court. And so we pick up in your second major heading, number two, the contrast with Barabbas. And your next blank there says, Pilate bargains with the Jewish leaders. He bargains with the Jewish leaders. Look at verse 39. So we're back in John chapter 18, the last two verses, verse 39 says, but when excuse me, it says, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? In Pilate's first trial, he had concluded in verse 38, I find no guilt in him. And now Pilate had sent Jesus to Herod. So somewhere between John 18, 38 and 39 is when that whole thing happened with Herod. Now that he's been brought back from Herod, we're picking up here in verse 39. In the end of verse 38, remember, he found no guilt in him. Now Pilate had sent him to Herod. He's come back. And Pilate knows that at this moment, since Herod didn't find anything that would be truly worth putting Jesus to death for, Pilate knows that he's in a pickle. Because if he makes a mistake here in the middle of this volatile situation, it could backfire on him, costing him his job. And at the same time, if Pilate condemns an innocent prisoner to death and the emperor hears that there is no crime warranting capital punishment, then he may be jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. So what should Pilate do? What should he do? Well, any normal believer would look to God's word and pray for wisdom and seek godly counsel. But Pilate didn't have any of those resources 
to lean on. It's just him and his godless worldview. Proverbs 16, 2 says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. And again, in Proverbs 21, 2, we read that every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. So it's just saying that, hey, we, we think we're right in doing whatever it is we do until we examine our heart to Scripture. And Pilate wasn't doing that. And sometimes I wonder if we fall into the same trap there where we're just kind of going with our gut instead of going with God's word, which is what we should be going with. But anyway, Pilate really wants uh, to do uh, the right thing to a, to a degree. And when I say the right thing, just to save his own hide and to really uh, push the situation in a place where it would just go away. And he is the appointed governor of, of the Roman Empire. So we can't be too soft here. And at the same time, he is to uphold Pax Romana, uh, the peace of Rome in the uh, Roman Empire. So he's got to figure out a way to, to squelch this mounting riot. And so Pilate actually thinks that the Jewish people might want Jesus to be released since Jesus was so popular with the crowds. Remember, it was just a week ago that uh, they had waved palm branches and taken off their garments and laid it down before Jesus, who entered the holy city of Jerusalem on a donkey. And they had shouted out, Hosanna, Hosanna to him in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Pilate is possibly thinking, well, maybe the people want Jesus released and so I'll just release him to the people, and that way the leaders won't get what it is that they want. But guess what happens? Your next verse, verse 40, and your next blank there in your outline says, the Jews demand Barabbas to be set free. They demand that Barabbas be set free. And so he says, hey, uh, during Passover, it's my custom to release a prisoner to you. I could either release Barabbas or Jesus. And they cried out again, not this man. So they point to Jesus and they're like, not this man, but Barabbas. And then the text says, now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate had underestimated the influence of the chief priests and Pharisees that they had over the crowd. And the Jews were truly sheep without a shepherd. And now they're being given over to the wolves, which would be these scribes and these Pharisees. And if the chief priest and Pharisees hypocrisy wasn't clear enough from verse 28, it is now. Remember in verse 28, we talked about at the beginning of last week's sermon that the Jews didn't want to enter into Pilate's quarters, so they didn't defile themselves, but they were willing to uh, have a legal trial by night and convict Jesus of a sin that he didn't commit because he didn't sin. And so they were really straining uh, a gnat with their teeth. And so that hypocrisy is now even seen to a greater degree in verse 40, where they're saying, here's this robber, Here's this man, Barabbas. Barabbas was not only a robber, he was a convicted felon. He was a robber, according to this text in Matthew 27, 16, says that he was also a notorious prisoner. Mark, chapter five, Mark 15, verse 7, and Luke 23, 19 say that he was a rebel, Barabbas, a rebel, an insurrectionist, and even a murderer. So when you put the whole picture together, you have the Lamb of God, the only one who can set uh, the Jews free from their sin. And then you have a robber. You have an insurrectionist. 
You, you have a murderer and the people call out when given a choice that you can either choose Jesus and embrace him back into your community or you can choose Barabbas and accept him back into your community. They chose Barabbas. And I want to say to you this morning, what a shame. What a shame that they would choose Barabbas. What a disgrace. How humiliating that the Jews would choose Barabbas the bandit over Jesus the justifier. And in doing this, they chose their own sin over the Savior. They chose legalism over liberty. They chose their own bondage over the bondage breaker. They chose chaos over Christ. They chose death over life. And my friends, every time that we sin, we make that same choice. You ever thought about that? It's as if you have a choice to make as a Christian, if I'm going to honor Christ today or if I'm going to sin today, and that, that sin, if it is represented by Barabbas and choosing Christ is the right way uh, that, to, to walk with Jesus, you have that same choice every day. And in that moment, when you choose sin, it's like you're saying, I'd rather be angry right now than to go with Christ. I, w- I would rather re- rebel at this moment than to revel in the glories of heaven. I'd rather feed my lust than to feast at the banqueting table prepared by Christ. I would rather drink the dregs of God's wrath than to thirst for righteousness. I would rather have his blood be upon me and our children than to have his blood atone for my sins. God forbid that we would ever say something like that. God forbid that we would ever think something like that. I think it's important to put it in such drastic terms because it is drastic. And in every moment that we sin, it's like we're saying, we want Barabbas. We don't want Jesus right now. He's cramping my style. And I'm getting convicted by by thinking about Jesus and what he would want me to do. I just want to do what I want to do. This is what the people are doing. This is what we might be tempted to do if 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 you have been calling for Barabbas and Barabbas-like activity over Jesus, I want to call you this day to repent. I want to call you to come to Christ. I want to call you to a new beginning. I want to call you to the mercy of God. I want to call you to the grace of God. I want to call you to a new joy and a new satisfaction. Don't try to fill your well with the water of Barabbas, but fill it with the living water offered by Christ. God forbid that we would ever choose Barabbas over Jesus. Well, that moves us to our third heading this morning. It's number three, the suffering servant. So we're now in John chapter 19, one through three. The first verse there talks about how Jesus was flogged. Your next blank, Jesus was flogged. Chapter 19, then Pilate. I'm sure he was astounded that they would choose Barabbas over Jesus. And so he goes to another resort here, if you will. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, a Roman flogging was a brutal, hideous, and cruel punishment reserved for the worst of criminals. It was often prescribed before a crucifixion just for the fact that they knew the criminal would lose so much blood when he was flogged that when he went to the cross, he would die earlier than usual. In fact, some prisoners never even made it through the flogging. They would literally die while they're being whipped. This idea of being flogged, it was done by more than one torturer. So they could take turns taking that whip 
and slinging it across the back and around the sides many times of their, their victim. Uh, the, the whole point was to strip the victim of any outer garment, to bind them to a post, and then to beat them within an inch of their life. And you, you understand here that the maximum number of blows, according to the Jewish tradition, was that they would only be able to give 40 blows. And so oftentimes they would only give 39 just because they didn't want to get too close to 40 or go over. But the Roman practice had no limit and they gave no such mercy. You were really up to the the, the mercy of either Pilate or the governing soldier over this this responsibility of whipping uh, whipping the victim. And that, that whip that they would use consisted of a short wooden handle with long leather straps attached to it. And at the end of each strip were sharp pieces of metal and also just jagged pieces of bones that were intended to rip the flesh off a person's back and off their sides. And the soldiers who carried out the flogging were trained at inflicting pain and causing much damage with each blow. And the whip with its sharp ends would sink into the victim's back and pull their skin off. And after several lashes, their muscles and their veins and their, sometimes their internal organs could be exposed. Many times, again, just the whipping itself would end in death. I just want to remind you today that Jesus was a suffering servant. And we're told about that according to Isaiah chapter 52 and Isaiah chapter 53. I, what I'm trying to say is not only did Jesus die for your sin, but he suffered for your sin. Now, I believe it was the death itself that accomplished atonement, but there is this understanding that he suffered for a season. He suffered in many different ways throughout his three years in in his ministry, but we also see here on this very last few hours, he suffered tremendously. I believe this is part of what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 52, 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. This is part of what happened to Jesus at his scourging. Suffering is sometimes a process. It lasts sometimes more than a second, more than a minute, more than an hour. It can last for days and weeks and years, as you well know. And yet in this confined time that Jesus suffered this immense uh, time of going to the cross, we do read in 1 Peter 2.23 that when he reviled, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. This is the Lamb of God. This is the lamb going right before his, his captors in order to give his life for you and to give his life for me. Not only was he flogged, but your next blank says that Jesus was mocked. He was mocked according to verse 2. It says the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Just like 
Herod had arrayed Jesus in splendid clothing as a mockery. Here the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. And thorns don't grow naturally into the shape of a crown. They, they grow in a misconfigured, haphazard, dangerous configuration. And it could have taken a soldier uh, up to a half an hour maybe to cut the thorns and to wind them up and twist them in such a way as not to even prick himself. And this particular thorn bush which is native to Israel that we think that that these crown of thorns came from. Uh, This thorn bush is known to have white, milky sap, which is poisonous, and it can cause skin irritation and eye irritation. And these thorns can be anywhere from a, a half an inch to an inch long. And these soldiers no doubt no doubt pressed this crown of thorns down on Jesus's head to make sure that it stuck. And when we think of these thorns, we can't help but to think of the curse that entered the Garden of Eden because of Adam and Eve's fall. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, we read about what God said to Abraham when he announced the curse. He said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread well thorns and thistles thorns were there when the curse of sin entered the world and thorns are now seen on Jesus's head when the curse of sin was broken by his sacrifice this purple robe that the soldiers placed on Jesus was a symbol of royalty and yet they used it as an item of mockery. They were mocking the idea of Jesus being a king. The robe they placed on Jesus would have instantly stuck to his lacerated back with that blood maybe starting to clot. And when they put it on him, it would have just stuck on there. And then when they ripped it off of him, it would have been like pulling the scabs off. It would have been excruciating pain like sandpaper on an open wound. Matthew 27, 29 adds, that they put a reed in his right hand, probably to symbolize a scepter. And kneeling before him, they mocked him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. So they scourged him. They mocked him. Verse 3 says that Jesus was beaten. Your next blank, Jesus was beaten. Verse 3, they came up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. The New American Standard Bible says on this verse that they gave him slaps in the face. Matthew 27 verse 30 says that they spit upon him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Isaiah 53 verses 2 and 3 prophesies about this when it talks about how Jesus grew up before him like a young plant and like a young root Out of the dry ground, he had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Many of the Hebrew uh, commentaries on um, Isaiah 53 would say that part of this was fulfilled at this point when he was being scourged, when he was being mocked, when his body was being mangled, even as they were getting ready to put him on the cross, that you wouldn't have esteemed him in that moment because of the suffering that he went through. Well, why, why did this have to happen? I mean, I understand maybe that 
someone needed to die in our place, as we just talked about the atonement happened at the act of death, why did he have to suffer so much? Why is an innocent man given uh, over to the hands of rude Roman soldiers for them to mock him and smite Jesus at their pleasure? Why is Jesus treated so horribly and so spitefully difficult as it may be to understand this scripture is the only answer for us to make light in the midst of this confusion. And only one enabled by the sovereign grace of God can see the beauty of God's plan unfolding. As I've shared with you many times, I've been reading A.W. Pink's uh, commentary on John, and he offers four answers to the question, why did this have to happen? Why did it have to be so gruesome? And these aren't in your notes. You can just listen, but he gives four reasons of why it was so bad. Number one, he said, in order for the evilness of sin to be clearly seen. You see, this wasn't a clean death. This wasn't a quick death. This was something that was drawn out, and in that we see the evilness of sin more clearly. Never were the desperate wickedness of the human heart and the deadly enmity of the carnal mind and the unspeakable vileness of sin's ways so unmistakably evidenced as when the Son of God was delivered into the hands of men. And we know that Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately sick. So what we're saying is we're seeing depravity on display while these soldiers made Jesus suffer. Romans 8, verse 7 says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Romans chapter 3 verses 13 through 16 says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. So how did this happen, you ask? Well, it was in order for the deceit of sin to be clearly seen. All divine restraint was withdrawn and human depravity was allowed to show itself in its naked hideousness. The second reason that A.W. Pink mentions here that it had to be so bad was he says that it was Satan's hour. It was Satan's hour. Jesus said to those who came to arrest him in the garden, this is your hour under the power of darkness. And on the day when sin entered the world, God announced that he would put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between his seed and her seed in Genesis 3.15. And that enmity was revealed when Jesus became a man, for we're told in Revelation 12, verse 4, that the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered to devour her child as soon as it was born. It was Satan who moved Herod to slay all the young children in Bethlehem. But God intervened and the dragon's plan was spoilt. But now God hindered no longer. The hour had arrived when the serpent was to bruise the Savior's hill. And fully did he now take advantage of this opportunity. And in this hour, The unbelieving Jews and the Gentile Roman soldiers were of their father, the devil. 
The third reason that Pink offers of why this had to be so bad again was this. Number three, Christ was on the way to make atonement for our sin. This is why even in this moment, sin is revealed in all its enormity. Sin is lawlessness. Therefore, Pilate flogged the innocent one. Sin is transgression. Therefore, the Jews set aside all principles in their law of how to conduct a fair trial. Sin is iniquity. Therefore, the injustice of these soldiers was displayed in them smiting the one who had never harmed a living creature. Sin is rebellion against God. Therefore, did the Jew and Gentile alike mistreat the Son of God. Sin is an offense. Therefore, did they outrage in every ounce of consciousness and propriety. Sin is falling short of the glory of God. Therefore, did they heap public shame upon his son. And sin is defilement and uncleanliness. Therefore, did they cover his face with their spittle. The fourth reason given of why this had to happen, number four, Christ was to die in the place of sinners. Therefore, God's wrath against sin requires that either you die and pay for your own sin, or Christ dies in your place. The Old Testament law required an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. And all sin is a revolt against God, a treating of him with contempt, a virtual smiting of him. Therefore, Christ was scourged by sinners. When Jesus became sin for us, the righteous curse of a holy God fell upon him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here's the truth of our salvation. The Savior was scourged that we might go free. He was crowned with thorns that we might be crowned with blessings and glory. He was clothed with a robe of contempt that we might receive the robe of righteousness. He was rejected so that we might receive that eternal reward. Well, have you come to that point in your life where you have realized that Jesus went through all of this suffering, the scourging and the suffocation on the cross for you? That on this day, you could be made new. That on this day, you could be forgiven. That on this day, you could have a new heart. Jesus did not die in vain. He did not die just because he wanted to die. He died because he loved his father and he wanted to fulfill his father's plan. And he died because he loved you and he wanted to suffer in your place and he wanted to die in your place so that you would never have to experience that in the same way that Jesus did. Can you see his love for you this morning? Can you see the depth of what he was willing to go through for you? Not just the death, which is bad enough in itself, but the suffering that led up to the death that Jesus was willing to be that suffering servant so that you would never have to suffer the wrath of God. Well, let's look at verses four and five and see the fourth heading this morning. Number four, the feeble attempt of Pilate to free Jesus. There are two statements that Pilate made that we should look at. The first is, and your next blank says, I find no guilt in him. Look at verse four. He said, Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you now that you may know that I find no guilt in him. 
in him. Pilate is saying to the Jews that he was going to bring Jesus out again, and he still found no guilt in Jesus. Remember, Jesus was the spotless lamb, and not even this pagan governor could find anything wrong with Jesus. And it's shocking to me to see how many unbelievers in the New Testament declared Jesus to be spotless. Think about it. There was Judas who declared this in Matthew 27, verse 4. Judas said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas knew Jesus was innocent. To the Jews, Pilate had said in Luke 23, verse 14, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Of Herod, Pilate said in Luke 23, 15, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Pilate's wife even begged him in Matthew 27, 19, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Even the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 41, and we indeed uh, justly, for we are receiving due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. The centurion, the Roman centurion, praised God when he said in Luke 23, 47, certainly this man was innocent. And those who stood with the centurion also acknowledged in Matthew 27, 54, truly this was the son of God. How ironic that Judas and Herod declared Jesus as innocent, as well as Pilate and his wife, as well as the centurion and other soldiers, all of these people declared that Jesus was innocent. How is it that the chief priests and the Pharisees can't see that they are the only ones who are calling Jesus a sinner? How blind we truly can be to our own sin. How dark our hearts can be. How much effort we go in order to hide the truth so we can continue to sin like we want. But you got to remember this morning, God knows. He knows your heart. He knows what's going on. You can't hide it from God. Hebrews 4.13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And then Pilate said in verse 5, your next blank, he says, behold the man. Look at verse 5. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, behold the man. Now, no one knows for sure what Pilate uh, exactly meant and what he was trying to do by saying, behold the man. But I think, along with probably most of the commentaries, that Pilate might have been appealing to the Jews' pity. See how he has already suffered. Would the shame and the bleeding wounds be enough to appease their wrath? Has he not already suffered enough? Was he not already, uh, has he not already been punished enough? I mean, before, uh, before this, Pilate wanted to let him go, and the Jews said no. So he's like, if I do this and this and this, maybe they'll let me let him go. I mean, Pilate had really never seen any other prisoner suffer like Jesus did. He had never seen any other prisoner carry himself like Jesus did. Never before had Pilate seen such quiet dignity, such fearless courage, such noble majesty. And I think Pilate was inspired by Jesus' example, but also impressed 
by the way that he had governed this situation so far. But even if that was what Pilate had in mind, divine providence had another plan. You see Isaiah 53, which talks about a lot of this suffering and of course the cross, 53.7, and Isaiah says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is being led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so why Pilate, in a sense, is kind of pulling for Jesus, I could be wrong here, but I feel like he's kind of pulling for Jesus. Is this not enough? Behold the man. We know it was still God's plan for Jesus to see it through. And J.C. Ryle says here, quote, that our blessed Lord, the eternal word, meekly submitted to be led out after this fashion as a gazing stock and an object of scorn, with an old purple robe on his shoulders, a crown of thorns upon his head, his back bleeding from scourging, and his head from thorns, to feast the eyes of a taunting, howling, bloodthirsty crowd is indeed a wondrous thought. Truly, such love passeth knowledge. Close quote. The only reason Jesus went through it is because of his love for his Father and his love for you that he could suffer in your place and that he could die in your place. And at this point, I think Pilate's starting to get the idea here that he's really done nothing wrong and he's inspired by that. You know, that's why whenever you read accounts about martyrs who go to be burned at the stake, there's like this holy hush over the crowd as they watch and see what will this individual do when they go to face their gruesome death. And that's what they're watching. That's what Pilate's seeing. And he's affected by that. And so should we be. We should just examine this beautiful sacrifice of the Lord Jesus as gruesome as it is. I mean, I think that probably for many of you, your stomach's been turning inside of you, even as we've read the description about the scourging and the blood and the thorns. And if you've ever watched Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ, it's just so brutal. It's just so, it's so otherworldly. I, I can't hardly look at it without just being riveted in my heart by what's going on. And yet this is what Jesus did. This is what he did because of his love for you. And finally, we see here our fifth heading, verses six and seven, the Jews' hatred of Jesus, their hatred of him. Your next blank says, the Jews wanted Jesus crucified. They wanted him crucified. Verse 6, when, when Pilate said, behold the man, when uh, the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. There is one thing that Pilate underestimated, and that was the sheer hatred that the chief priest and the officers had for Jesus. They detested Jesus. And when they saw the Lord of glory, and they saw that he was disfigured and dripping with blood, when they saw Jesus bruised and battered, when they saw Jesus mocked and ridiculed, when, and when they saw all of this, it just wet their appetite for more. Like sharks sensing blood in the water, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. This was a frenzy. This was these religious people gone mad that they had chosen a murderer, Barabbas, to be set free in order that Jesus would be whipped and that he would die on a cross a gruesome death. How true it is 
that Christ's greatest enemies have always been the religious leaders who thought they were doing what they were doing for God, but they were serving a God of their own making. And from the Pope who tried Martin Luther and wanted to have him killed to the cardinals of Rome who persecuted the reformers. From Bloody Mary who had hundreds of men and women burned at the stake in the English Reformation to Mary the Queen of Scots who had John Knox killed. From the Anabaptists who were drowned by the magisterial Protestants to the Christian missionaries who have recently been beheaded by ISIS. True Christians align themselves with Jesus Christ will always be in danger of persecution and of death. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. May God always give us that courage to stand with Christ. And so Pilate, now fed up with the Jewish response, says, take him yourselves and you crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And that leads us to verse 7. Your last blank there says the Jews condemned Jesus to death. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. The, the Jews were essentially saying here, maybe you have found no fault with Jesus in the Roman law, but we have found fault with Jesus in our own Jewish law. And according to the Jews, Jesus had committed the sin of blasphemy by claiming to be the son of God. And according to Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, the Jews believed that Jesus deserved to die. Leviticus 24, 16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And if anyone else had said, I am the son of God, then they would have blasphemed and they would have deserved death under the old covenant. But Jesus really is the son of God. This was either the most horrible blasphemy or else it was the most glorious truth. God said this about Jesus in Matthew 3, 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus said this about himself in John 5, 26, for as the father has life in himself, so he granted the son also to have life in himself. And so you know what's really crazy to me, you know, God the Father claimed Jesus was his son. Jesus claimed to be the son of God. You know what's really crazy to me here about this verse in, in John nineteen seven? It's this, these Jews are using the Bible to condemn Jesus. They're using this verse of Leviticus 24, 16, and they're like, ah, that's the verse that condemns Jesus, who is the Lord of glory. They were using the Bible to condemn Jesus. That's how off you can get when you're steeped in ritualism and in legalism. You can actually use the Bible to condemn Jesus and to condemn the freedom that he extends to us through salvation. 
Can I just ask you this morning, are you free today? Are you free from your sin? Are you free from your shame? Are you free from your flesh? Are you free from this world? Come to Christ today and experience the forgiveness that he offers for you because of the suffering and the sacrifice that Jesus went through for all of those who would repent and believe. The Jews smell blood in the water, but what we smell on this morning is the sweet aroma of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, it says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Do you smell blood in the water? When you smell the blood of Jesus, just looking through this gruesome text, Do you smell the beauty of the aroma of Christ and his love for you and his desire to save you and his desire to to be with you through all of life? I want to call you to this Christ this morning, to this loving sacrifice, this person, Jesus, who loves you and who gave his life for you so that you could have new life in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to look at this text, and I just, I just got to admit, it's not a fun text to preach. Who, who wants to preach about the gruesome scourging of the Son of God? Who wants to preach about the mockery of these soldiers? It's not something that is appealing to our senses, and yet at the same time, there's something very true and something very attention-grabbing and something that just causes us to stand in awe and to stand amazed at the, the beauty of Christ's sacrifice for us. And Lord, we know that while the Jews here smell blood, we want to be the type of person who smells that aroma of the beauty of the sacrifice, the beauty of Christ's love for us. And so I pray for anyone listening this morning, if they're not born again, saved by grace, that this message would somehow just grip their hearts and cause them to see your incredible love for us. And for those of us who are Christians, may we never forget this account. May we never forget the suffering along with the the, the death of Jesus Christ, such a beautiful sacrifice that we could have new life. And I pray that that would cause us today to want to walk in holiness, to want to walk in purity, to want to walk in a way that would honor this death, in a way that would honor this sacrifice. And so whatever we're struggling with today, God, we bring it before you and we ask for your help and we ask for your intervention. And we thank you for the sacrifice of what Jesus paid on our behalf so that we could be set free. God, we don't want to go into a frenzy when it comes to our sin. We want to go into a a fanatical following of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would love you with every ounce of our being, with every part of our soul, and that that would display itself and how we treat our wives and our husbands and how we parent and obey our parents and how we go forth this week. We would be thinking about this text. We'd be thinking about God's love for us through Christ, and it would cause us to, to worship and to walk in obedience. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.